Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Respectfully Disagree. So, we've heard about consent being sexy, but is that all that it can be? Sex positive feminism has been a vehicle to tackle a lot of issues that young women face around shame and desire and help empower them. But what about those who don't feel empowered by sex? Does asexuality have any space in this conversation? That's what we're debating and unpacking today. And to help us do this, we have an extremely special guest, Lisa Mangaldas, who is a sex educator, an author, a podcaster, uh, and a video content creator who aims to imagine and helps facilitate a world, actually, where all sexual experiences can be consensual, safe, and pleasurable, as you yourself put it, Lisa. So we're really excited to have you here with us to unpack this question. And to start off with, um, I want to ask everybody, does sex positivity at the moment exclude asexuality? Yes or no? Where do you stand on this? This is Shishti, your host, by the way. I think that it's not even a question. Like, in my opinion, sex positivity is incomplete without acknowledging asexuality as a you know, very much a part of the conversation. So I um, recognize that sometimes sex positive platforms can seem to focus so much on sex that it can seem like asexuality is not being sort of um, given as much attention or is invisibilized inadvertently or something like that. So I see where you're coming from, but I wish we didn't even have to ask this question. Like to me, sex positivity and asexuality are by no means mutually exclusive. Sex positivity isn't, you know, telling everybody go have sex or that sex is the answer to everything or that sex is, you know, always and only great. No, I feel like sex positivity is um, acknowledging that in an ideal world, we would all be able to prioritize agency and personal choice. Uh, and minimize judgment and whether that agency means having sex or whether it means not being driven by sex or whatever multitude of various possibilities that could be for any individual, you know, should all be um, up to us to determine and explore ourselves as opposed to having this sort of pressure and judgment from a socially sanctioned script uh, dictate who you're allowed to be in your personal life or who you're allowed to be sexually or who you're allowed to love or how you're allowed to express love. Okay. Hi, this is Rohita. And I agree with you, Elisa, um, fully uh, on hearing everything that you're saying. I agree with most of it, but also respectfully disagree with some of it. Um, so what I'll say is uh, there's this bit where you mentioned socially san- sanctioned scripts and to me, it's feeling like this just in terms of the zeitgeist we're in um, and how much sex positivity and feminism kind of are hand in hand in terms of how they're conflated. And um, it almost feels like you cannot have feminism without sex positivity and vice versa. Um, there is a lot of emphasis and centering of sex. Um, what I want to ask over here at this junction is what would it be like if we start decentering sex so in the ace community there's uh, this conversation about an asexual consciousness or asexual theory it's to say that we have been placing too much emphasis on 
sex as an activity as a almost facet of human life and we're organizing our feminism around it and so we're kind of saying that sexual liberation is central to feminism and feminism cannot exist without um you know rooting the politics its politics in sexual liberation um and while i hear what you're saying about how sexual liberation means affording the agency to everybody to express that in any way they desire even if that's if that doesn't involve sex at all it feels like the mainstream culture has imbibed this idea of sex being empowering to such an extent that it feels alienating to people who don't find empowerment in that sort of narrative so just to throw that question out there i mean you know i don't even necessarily think sex is empowering i don't know i've never said that i understand that pop culture and particularly western pop culture might um suggest that sort of association but think in the indian context at least since we're all in india and much of our work is you know reaching an indian audience i think sex is still largely posited as an activity that women um must not partake in you know certainly not before marriage and even after marriage it's posited as the site of sort of duty and shame and pain is something that a wife owes her husband i mean marital rape is legal in our country right what more uh, evidence do we need that women's agency is you know still grossly disregarded so i feel i'm not sure that we've reached a point yet in india where sex is seen as um sort of something that women you know modern empowered women can and should partake in because i think that by and large we're still like extremely entrenched in this heteronormative marriage based paradigm where you know sex is only sanctioned in a opposite sex same religion same caste and like very endogamous marriage i really am glad you brought up uh, the issue of marriage and heteronormativity and marital rape because that i think represents a very interesting uh, overlap right between and like a point of alliance between uh, sex positive feminism and asexuality um because interestingly marital rape is an issue around which ace communities tend to organize uh politically speaking it's kind of recognizing the way that the state imposes compulsory sexuality on individuals on and sex is a way of also imposing heteronormativity in the state caste endogamy everything that you pointed out um but the approach and i think the critique about what we are what we should do about it i think slightly differs which is to say that which is to ask the state to stop regulating sex entirely like completely remove sex from the way that the state uh, manages people like looks at people etc um rather than maybe like advocating for more recognition of more types of or variants of sexuality uh just divorcing people's sexual lives from the state and then that would completely reconfigure the world as we know it because then the the basis of marriage the way that the state sanctions compulsory heterosexuality through marriage would completely disappear and the institution of the family would disappear monogamy would disappear so that's what i mean by the asexual consciousness it is a way of also reimagining the world where sex is not regulated anymore 
and it's completely decentered it's not the point of uh, negotiation anymore with the state um so i'm wondering if there's a way that you know the two can align over there because the approach seems the critique seems to be the same what we're against but the approach seems to be different you know what i mean i'm so glad you mentioned what you did about decentering um getting the like get the state out of your bedroom right basically oh out of your personal life and out of i'm i'm so with you there when i talk about with the different people about marriage equality i i also uh, suggest the idea that why why are we fighting for the right to get married like why not abolish the marriage as a form via which rights and financial benefits and various other things are um disseminated right wouldn't it be nice if i could leave my property to my friend or my roommate or my you know whatever person that has played an impact in my life regardless of whether i'm married or why does it even matter but i think that when i make those arguments people are like yo you're so utopian like that's never going to happen so the more realistic step that perhaps if we advocate sufficiently for we might see you know in our lifetime is at least equal equal rights so right now we don't even have marriage equality if same sex marriage is legal at least i can leave my property to my queer partner as opposed to you know having to navigate the system so i i mean it's sad that we have to fight for crumbs on the table but right now if we're being realistic like when is india going to abolish marriage as a necessary legal sort of system via which um, very you know property taxes in children inheritance identity cards like all of this nexus of stuff that makes everyday life manageable i also have a question here which is that i mean i totally agree and i think i would be one of those people who would be butting in and saying that hey this is probably too utopian you know or how would it actually work out another question is that when so many of us don't have access to narratives about sexual pleasure it does feel like sex positivity is that space where you can see yourself reflected where you can see narratives around sex and sexual pleasure which uh are realistic you know and which center individuals and intimacy rather than sexualization and objectification right so yeah i mean again it goes back to what lisa you were saying initially that it it is 100% possible to be for there to be this like for asexuality and sex positivity to be completely aligned right um but i think um when we're talking about how there's this expectation of like the abla nari the desexualized woman etc and how that serves a patriarchal purpose let's also not forget that like both are kind of co-opted in in many ways right so like sex positive feminism came up like in the 80s 90s um post the radical feminist currents that were going on in the west and um it it got co-opted by the likes of Hugh Hefner and the Playboy empire and then uh women's magazines and then the beauty industries and then uh it it was just industrialized almost where sex positivity became so mainstream and so co-opted that again it was weaponized against the very people that it was meant to empower and similarly the idea of the desexualized uh chaste woman being the ideal woman was also is also kind of like a narrative that doesn't suit anybody really and it's kind of like uh led to a situation where these two things are pit against each other and the reason we're even having this conversation is that it seems like we're on two opposite ends of 
uh, a field where we don't have to be because of the ways in which it's been co-opted, right? So that's why it feels like there is a lot of room to to align on 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 certain given facts that sex is weaponized uh, by various powers that be, by the patriarchy, by the state, by corporations, um, and by every every major institution that structures our lives. So what is a way in which we can resist that that doesn't end up um, reinforcing either of those narratives? And again, I don't have an answer, but uh, it feels like the more dominant strand in the discourse right now is this expositive strand. And I'm I'm just like, that's what that's where I'm coming from, the where I'm seeing from from my vantage point, it feels like one is more dominant than the other, where it should be more like a like an alliance, right? So that that's where I'm coming from. I feel like it's a bit more complicated than just, you know, the oh, like this idea of the empowered modern woman as a woman who has lots of sex is the dominant narrative. Like there's all of the cultural differences in different parts of the world, as well as I think the like overwhelming specter of toxic masculinity, as well as, um, I mean, we talked a little bit about like the Madonna Ho type of complex thing. There's so much at play. How do we decide which issue needs the most attention? It's very difficult. And I think what often happens is that because it would seem statistically like more people are allosexual than asexual, more of the discourse gets allotted to unpacking things like contraception and consent and in... Uh, you know, or I can see, I mean, I think these, that a, a lot of numbers are skewed because of social stigma around being able to openly identify however you do. So it can seem today still like most people are heterosexual, most people are allosexual. And so that's what the conversation around sex, particularly in a country like India, where we couldn't really talk much about sex until recently, is focused on, you know, like this is how you prevent having an unwanted pregnancy. This is how you prevent getting STIs during vaginal intercourse. This is how you have an orgasm during penetrative sex. Like, I feel like it can just seem like those are the questions that most people have. And so we're trying, you know, let's like spend some time answering those FAQs or whatever, because that seems to be the majority concern. But I, and I'm not saying that you should only care about what the majority seems to care about. Not at all. I think, in fact, you need to like all the more emphasize the, experiences that we might not be hearing enough about right but I think I'm just saying I think that's where some of that comes from the reason that like even a government would not let's say in gov, not government but let's say like a human rights related advocacy group or something will often have a lot of information even if couched in a very inclusive fashion that ends up still catering to a pretty heteronormative allosexual view of sex I feel like is because you know there's that sort of like it seems like there's a lot of cishet people who want this who need this information who don't know and who are clueless <laughs> let's just say yeah i think that makes a lot of sense and i mean one can't forget right that one of the most important scenes in our mainstream indian cinema where swara bhaskar in the film the wedding um uses a vibrator i think that's one of the few scenes in mainstream and in cinema where you see that happening and then the actor who played that role doesn't hear the end of it right the filmmakers don't hear the end of it and they're all brutally trolled for just portraying a woman using a vibrator and um, in many other contexts just like a cishet woman appear like having sex and appearing to enjoy it 
is a huge problem. Like people leave it out of narratives. You know, writers talk about how actors are hesitant to take up certain roles because of how they might affect their image and so on and so forth. So there is a lot of shame and stigma around sex still. I mean, like speaking to Lisa's point, but that does bring me to like an important exercise of like maybe we can unpack some of the moments and trends in pop culture that speak to the tensions between sex positivity and asexuality and where they align and what does it mean for sex positivity to be inclusive of asexuality, right? Um, so one is, let's start off with what is the most common narrative uh, across many rom-coms and sitcoms, right? Where all romantic tension ultimately inevitably leads up to sex as the final payoff and I think Bridgerton which is basically the most watched Netflix show ever is is the classic example of that right where uh, in both seasons actually the ultimate is that these two people are able to have like legally sanctioned sex and in the case of Daphne and Simon it is that hey he will agree to have sex which will lead to conception right so what do we feel about narratives such as these and is there an alignment there between sex positivity and age discourse where Maybe it's time to start questioning this kind of a narrative arc of the links between romance and sexuality. You know, okay, my reading of Bridgerton and there's this particularly controversial scene in Bridgerton where uh, Daphne and Simon, uh, they when, whenever they have sex, Simon never finishes because of some something that's going on with him he has his reasons and that's part of the plot but um the point is he has his reasons and he doesn't and that's the way that he engages in sex but she does not respect that and there's one scene in which she basically forces him to uh and that was widely discussed as a rape scene and i tend to uh like I'm bringing that up because that to me is kind of like the epitome of of what it is to kind of not have productive conversations about what like the 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 what do you call it the variability in in sexual experiences and and boundaries and um, ace communities have that conversation a lot because as we've spoken about it's like it's a spectrum it's not necessarily the case that any sexual person will never in their life have sex or are repulsed by sex. It's it's a spectrum where it's like each individual person's experience is completely different from another person's and it's no two ace experiences are the same. So somebody's uh, embodiment of asexuality could be very similar to Simon's in fact. I mean, we don't know, right? Um, but, but the absence of that kind of conversation about what... Uh, a diversity of sexual experiences could look like where the 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 main emphasis and the focus is on the fact that desire is something that we can never take for granted it's not the case that every human being has innately has sexual desire period and the same amount and the same everything if we start from there then these kind of representations could look really different um, and we may not have had to witness a scene like that where it was even like heavily debated was it a sexual assault scene or not like there's no question about it his boundaries were violated and he expressed his desires in certain ways which were not respected so that's why I feel like that's the kind of um, 
I mean, at least when it comes to pop culture, that's the implications of not uh, really like having conversations about what A's experiences could be like or even like, you know, speaking to A's, A's people. It's not even like about including asexual, asexuality, but also but just just about like mainstreaming that point of view to me. So, yeah. 100% and like who would we be in that version of the world, you know, because so much of who we are also seems like about conditioning around gender and marriage and all of these various norms. Uh, that brings up another question, which is that, you know, inevitably these conversations about uh, gender and sexuality and heteronormativity in a sense create like a hierarchy of desire, you know, White Lotus, which uh, wrapped up uh, last Sunday, there was a similar kind of depiction of, you know, the 80-year-old man, Bert, who was in, in, you know, a family of three where, you know, his sexual desires were sort of frowned upon by both his son and his grandson as being gross or being just like very, very disgusting because he's an elderly man, uh, creating this kind of stigma around like who is seen as like somebody who is asexual or somebody who should be asexual is like, you know, an elderly man. At the same time, the people who Bert desires on the show are people who, like he himself says, young enough to be his granddaughter, you know, because there is, in our culture, overwhelmingly, the people who we see as desirable are, you know, cis, het, conventionally attractive women. Uh, So do we think that it's important to sex positivity to sort of acknowledge this hierarchy of desires that exist? And how important do you think it is to talk about well, who do we act, want to have sex with, right? And how do we decide who are the people who we want to have sex with? I'm curious, Lisa, if that's ever particularly something that you've grappled with, you know, in the context of your work and in having conversations about, like, sexuality and sex positivity and sexual expression. Um, I think we're certainly presented with a sort of a hierarchy of, I'm not sure about desire, but desirability. Who gets consi- who gets to be considered desirable, right? Where Where... Um, presented with some very uh, rigid ideas around what beauty, quote unquote, looks like, what desirability looks like, um, and and I guess uh, in on a related note, we're also presented with a hierarchy of what is considered legitimate and how legitimate it is considered in terms of how we express desire, right? So. I think that within the um, desirability hierarchy, for the longest time, it was like white, young, cishet, able-bodied um, people, right? Who, I mean, it, until recently in India, I feel like we never even saw brown people having sex. Like it was just white people. Whether it was in a description, in a in a textbook. Uh, anatomical illustration of the genitalia or whether it was you know stock images of like couple in uh, couples in intimate bedroom positions or whatever in a relationship magazine about just like something pg something that's safe for work even right but it would be like two blonde people like blonde blue-eyed white people like cuddling under the sheets and it would be like you know um, five tips to make valentine's day extra special or whatever right you'd never you wouldn't even see brown people in like the most basic um writing or sort of advice or i don't know representations of romance or desire i feel like until and and you let alone queer people or people 
differently abled people or I mean the rest of it right so I think it is it is um, worth unpacking for sure and there's I mean how can we deny that there are these influences right in terms of what we're fed like it takes some un, undoing it's nobody's who can we blame I'm not sure because it's so over it's just like this umbrella that's been there for so long before you've even been discerning enough and old enough to sort of understand um, that this isn't just the natural way of the world. This is something that's been systemically fed to you, you know? Yeah. And, you know, like what you were saying, when uh, the representations we see, that's, again, fully agree with that. And even if we look at shows like uh, The Big Bang Theory and the character Raj, the Indian who cannot talk to women and he goes like completely mute. Um, and, And these characters in pop culture are assigned asexuality. They're not identifying as asexual in any way. In fact, they are shown to be having sexual desire, but they're assigned asexuality by people who don't want to have sex with them. So it's almost, it's very dehumanizing. Um, And even like the corollary of that, there are people who are hypersexualized against their will. Uh, like black men, for example, literally, uh, there's there's one scene in the movie Get Out where um, there's a white woman who asks, uh, I forget everybody's names in the movie, but essentially there's uh, a young couple where the, the man is black and his girlfriend is white. And then the white girlfriend is asked by another white woman whether it's as good as she's heard it would be. And that's that's like a moment where it's it's supposed to really reinforce that creeping sense of dread and white people dehumanizing black bodies. Um, and the same goes for black women. The same goes for uh, even over here in, in our context, like Dalit women are highly sexualized. Um, it, and we've spoken a lot about that, about how it's against, it, 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 it almost like that, perception in our national imaginary fuels a lot of like sexual violence and um so it is very harmful like both of this to say that sex sex is weaponized against people in a way that ranks them according to desirability and almost always against their will except for somebody who is occupying a position of privilege already and again that's that's where i feel like uh, a lens to look at that, to critique that, and to resist that, uh, that's rooted in, again, decentering sex and the way that it's used, um, or at least critiquing the way that we talk about sex and even talk about consent as not so in, intertwined with sex, but consent for its own sake, um, is something that could be particularly useful to unpack these situations. On that note, I do wonder as sort of a parting note, right? So there is um, this quote, there is something that um, this writer says where nobody has, and I quote, nobody has sexual freedom until all of us are free to be sexual, to experience a sexual subjectivity independent of sexual contact or not, however we feel, however it suits us and whenever it suits us. Right. So that's what this um, writer, C.J. Deluzio, Chazen writes in a paper published in Feminist Studies. Right. So on that note where, you know, we have this vision for sex positivity in an ideal world to be able to afford us this freedom. Where do you think we begin 
and what does it mean to actually talk about um, desire and intimacy without excluding um, asexuality. I think that we're actually raised in ways which um, deliberately seek to negate our consent. You know, you will do as I say, that is the parenting model. Eat what I tell you, wear what I tell you, study what I tell you, marry who I tell you, live where, you know. To a large extent, I feel like young people, and particularly in our part of the world, aren't encouraged to ask, like, who am I? What do I want? Um, And so you, you end up being like, you know, well into your 20s, really beholden to certain authority figures in your life who might not even always be telling you the truth or telling you what's, you know, the whole the whole picture or presenting you with a lot of options. Or you might not even know what you don't know, right? Because you're this authority figure you're leaning on, hoping that they're giving you credible information or are being fair or whatever else that you're conditioned to see authority figures as being you know, often, often they're not, right? And I feel like it takes so much work. Often you're like 30 years old before you can unpack who you really are or just beginning to unpack, you know, let alone who you are sexually or what you want or what you, what matters to you. Um, And I feel like we delay that process. Imagine if we were able to, with confidence, really be in tune with um, our own sort of sense of self and you know, have a, have a strong sense of agency. Imagine a world where everybody respected each other's boundaries, where there was room not just for yes and no, but also maybe where you felt grateful when someone said they're not ready for something because they're honoring their own boundaries instead of feeling rejected or like now is an opportunity to take revenge because you didn't get what you want, you know, what you want, what you wanted or whatever. I mean, I think it's such a radical sort of um, shift that it feels almost unattainable or too much to ask for right now. Yeah, Lisa, fully hearing you on that. And um, again, I agree with what you're saying. And I also agree that uh, consent, again, is a key part of this. And I also feel like um, desire and intimacy is something else that is a key part of this. Um, Because intimacy and forming solidarities and with people is something that is another axis uh, around which uh, women are left out of. I mean, usually it's like within all of these institutions of family, monogamy, heteronormativity, it's usually about control over women's bodies mediated through sex. So what would it be like if women found intimacy and comfort, solidarity in other ways uh, not just through sex, what if we start mobilizing around those things, around friendship, around love, and around um, any other kind of, you know, closeness, uh, which doesn't necessarily have to do with sex so much. Um, and so there's space for all of these things. Um, and the, our feminism isn't communicated in the language of sex and sexuality so much as it is around agency and consent which is not as uh you know it's not the same as the mean what it means in the context of sex it's so much more like you said so yeah yep absolutely i think both of you have given us the perfect note to end on and a lot to think about and i hope the people tuning in and listening to this podcast can join us in imagining 
um, this kind of a world and maybe we move, you know, steps closer towards it. And on that note, and definitely, I think we need to start talking about the importance of cuddling with friends in conversations about desire and intimacy because that's very important at least to me so on that note thank you so much for joining us Lisa and uh, see you all again next time we always say that even though we don't actually see anyone I think it's just become a habit (laughs) thanks so much for having me this podcast is brought to you by TS Studios the production company that brings the Swaddle's creative point of view to original podcasts and films. 